Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? It's good to see you. Happy spring. All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 37 is where we find ourselves as we're Working our way through Genesis, we're coming down to the end for the next coming weeks. We're going to handle bigger chunks of Scripture. Today we're just going to be in chapter 37, but we're going to pick up the pace a little bit and handle a few chapters at a time here. Uh, although in a couple weeks we'll be in, in, uh, outside of Genesis as we celebrate the resurrection Easter Sunday, I'd encourage you to invite, invite friends, unbelievers, people not connected to a church. would encourage you to invite them. There's little, uh, little invitation cards out on the information desk that are just great little things for you to have about 10 or 20 of those in your wallet or purse. Uh, have a little map on the, on the back and our service time, website, all that. We'd love for you to take that and use those, not just for Easter Sunday, but, but all throughout the year. All right, as we're looking at Genesis 37... A couple things as you're finding that. And if you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. You can find Genesis 37 on page 24 or 31 of that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's yours to keep. We'd love for you to have that. Keep it. Read it. We're going to have a a good bit. We're going to have the whole chapter up on the screen as we read it. But I would really encourage you, even if you're a believer and you have a Bible, I would really encourage you to open your Bible to Genesis 37. It is really helpful for you to become familiar with your own Bible, where things are on, this, on the page. That's a great way to kind of grow in God's Word. So, but if you don't have a Bible, keep that one. It's our gift to you. Okay. Now, as we're working through Genesis, uh, we, last week, Robert led us through Genesis 35 and 36 and the end of the, really the, the focus on Jacob. And chapter 37 forms another transition into Joseph and his life, the son, one of the sons of Jacob, and and the story of Joseph and his life and what God does through him to rescue his people really forms the rest of the book, Genesis 37 through 50. Now here's the challenge of preaching and looking at just chapter 37 this morning, is that in a sense, we, we really can't talk about chapter 37 without really jumping ahead to what happens at the end. And that's really, 37 through 50 is, is a kind of unit that fits together about how God raises up this one faithful son to be the one, despite the betrayal of these brothers that we'll read about in just a moment, through that horrible sin of betrayal and envy, God will bring Joseph to a place of power in a faraway land where then he can be the means by which God redeems his people through the famine as they go to Egypt. And so we see this picture of God's sovereign providence behind the scenes. So, you know, God always starts every story. He starts creation already knowing the end from the beginning. And so we're not going to limit ourselves. Praise God, by the way, that we live in 2015, right? Let's not be these type of people that just wish we were back in the Eisenhower administration or whatever. You know, back when it was this and that. No, God is sovereign. He has numbered your days and he has deemed it most for his glory and your joy that we live now, right? And praise God that we're not 
trekking through the middle of Genesis 37 wondering what's going to happen. Right? Hebrews says that these old saints looked forward just in hope, not knowing, never having really grabbed a hold of it. But we now, in the New Testament, look back to the cross, anchor ourselves to that, and with hope look to the future. I can tell we've got a spring break crowd in here, and I'm going to have, some, have my work cut out for me. Thank you, Scotty Hill. All right, one little thing before we read. Next week, remember we talked about three Sundays that we're going to have some kind of like PG-13 slash R-rated chapters? <laughs> well, next week's a doozy. Um, some crazy stuff happens. So if you have a child that normally comes into the service, you're welcome to bring them as always. But just be aware that read ahead. We'll talk about it now, but read ahead. Genesis 38 is a doozy. Uh, and so uh, just be aware that there, there's some explicit material in there. And so if you're not used to checking your children in, you can check them into children's ministry. And if you have a middle schooler that um, you just haven't, you're not quite ready to have that talk, um, they can help, they can help in, in the elementary kids' church that Sunday. Okay, well, let's pray. And then we're going to read through. I know you want an outline. I'm going to give it to you right now. Just so you're not, you don't get squirmy on me midway through wondering where is he going. Okay, so here's our outline. We're going to just look, I think this chapter breaks down into these three divisions. The envy of the brothers, the betrayal of the faithful son, and the hidden hand of God. Well, let me pray and we'll read. Oh, Father, as we, as we settle into reading this text, praise God that we have your word. Lord, you have been so kind to us that you, through the centuries, have preserved your word. You've caused it to be transmitted by faithful servants to be written, then transmitted, and now translated faithfully into our language so that we can know it and read it. And in this book, as it is brought to life by your Holy Spirit, we have everything we need for life and godliness, as Peter writes. It is sufficient. So we thank you, God, for, for the opportunity to open your word. And we do think about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are trusting in Christ that do not have this great freedom and privilege. And we pray for Christians being persecuted by wicked and evil, demonic people and terrorist groups in the Middle East. We pray for Christians in underground churches, in closed countries and hostile governments, that you would strengthen them this morning. And I pray for us as we meet this morning that you would, would meet us in your word. Lord, I have nothing good to say, but your word is all we need. And so would I decrease, Father, and would your word and the power of your Holy Spirit increase? Would, would the beauty of Christ be exalted? Would he, would he rise from these pages in our hearts would believers in this room be encouraged and edified and convicted and spurred on? And would people that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ, Lord, would you, by your sovereign grace, give faith? Would you give life? Would you give the gift? Would you give the very thing that they need that they can't muster on their own? Would you give faith so that they can finally turn away from themselves and turn in faith to Jesus and see the beauty and the satisfaction that can be found in you alone. And would you do this all for your glory and our joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1. Let's read Genesis 31, 37. Sorry, just confused you and me. 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's 
sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Remember, those are two of his father Jacob's concubines, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, and remember as Robert uh, showed us last week, that's Jacob's new name, but uh, they kind of go back and forth. The writer, who we find out later is Moses, who's writing Genesis retroactively through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in these next few chapters is going to refer to Jacob kind of back and forth, Jacob and Israel. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. So Jacob is not the guy we're asking to do the parenting seminar, right? Not, not wise, Jacob. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are, we, are you indeed to rule over us? So, and we can say predictably, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon... And eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Verse 11, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Okay, well, let's settle down there and look at the envy of the brothers, just the overall situation that's going on here. Joseph brought a bad report. Before he even had one of the, the two dreams, he brought a, a bad report. Sounds like maybe, we don't, first of all, we don't know what was in that report. There's no specifics given, but he was you know, giving some report to his father that apparently the older brothers were not being quite as faithful in their stewardship of, of their father's flocks as they should have been. And so he brings this, this bad report to, to dad. Now, it sounds like maybe it's just kind of a classic little brother tattletale story. I, I was, and still am, actually a little brother. And maybe there were a few times in my upbringing where I told on my brother, uh, yeah, lots of times, except for that one time that he locked me in the bathroom over a weekend while my parents were away and just fed me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and he threatened my life and said, if you tell mom and dad that 
I did this to you, then it'll be even worse. So I actually didn't tell him. In fact, believe it or not, that, that story my parents heard in a sermon that they listened to, and they said, did that really happen? Y- yes, it did. <laughs> Feel free to punish him now, even <laughs> that we're in our 40s. Shockingly, the, it doesn't go so well with his older brothers. Maybe we can surmise that Jacob was a bit socially tone deaf, you know, maybe. Jacob certainly wasn't winning any Father of the Year awards. He favored him and gave him a special coat. The, the, the text says a robe or a coat of many colors. Now, this wasn't just, you know, just kind of a nice fancy, uh, you know, shirt It carried with it more than just being some nice gear, you know. It wasn't just like his dad got him some Air Jordans. You know, got him kind of the knockoffs from Kohl's or whatever, right? I grew up on the Mexican border, like right on the Mexican border. Like it was, you could see the fence from this house that we lived in when I was was younger. And I remember in the early 80s, mid 80s, when, when the Air Jordans came out, you know, and everybody had to have a pair of Air Jordans. And anytime you had something, some big sort of retail thing right across the border, there was all these, you know, knockoff brands. And you could always tell kind of, you know, who had the real Air Jordans and who bought the Air Jordans from across the border in Mexicali's flea market. Because, you know, like Jordan didn't have the ball or something like that. There was something missing on the shoe and it... <laughs> It fell apart a couple weeks in. No, this is not just some flashier, you know, bling-bling gear. This coat carried with it a a certain place and privilege. It it spoke something of Jacob's uh, recognition of the status of his favoritism of Joseph, that he would be the favored one, the chosen one over his, his older brothers. And you just have to wonder here. Did Jacob not learn, you know, from his own, uh, from his own, remember weeks ago we talked about Jacob and his brother Esau and him stealing the birthright from Esau and tricking his father. So Jacob is well acquainted with, with the, the, you know, the intricacies of family relationships and yet he still doesn't learn from his own experience. So on some level, as we kind of take in this story, I think I can kind of identify with the brothers. Um, you know, that, that, that would not go over well to have a little brother tell on you and then have these two, two dreams. So on some level, I kind of identify with it. But then let's look at the brothers' envy, just kind of the backdrop of their envy. It's not just sort of isolated and alone. It's, it's in this context of their, of their disobedience to their father. As I mentioned, when Joseph brings a bad report to dad about their activities, uh, it doesn't really say what they're doing, but it, we know that it wasn't good. They were not being obedient sons. There was just this, this kind of culture that was spreading amongst them and it was it was like it was like the flu virus on a plane it just sort of spread and it dragged it down the whole culture of the brothers and we had one faithful faithful son and it just made me think about just the context of our disobedience and the, the power of the culture sort of the and when I'm saying culture I'm not talking about the american culture so much as just the the subcultures that we sort of 
sort of, uh, you know, are, are in and the power that they can have on even our own life and sanctification? Do we understand the power and the pull of the influences around us and how it may cause us to drift in disobedience to God? If you are a young soldier in an infantry battalion, I've spent some time in an infantry battalion, and you know how dark uh, those places can be and how, how that can drag you down. If you've been in a locker room, you know how that can just sort of impinge or infringe on your soul. If you are a young mother in sort of a passive-aggressive, ultra-competitive network of friends where you're all in sort of subtle competition to see whose baby can sleep through the night and, you know, eat organic peas and like it, right? It can just sort of weigh on you. If you're, if you're a little league dad, right, and you just, you want to teach your kid how to do this or that or throw a curveball and you want to adorn the back of your truck with stickers about how awesome your nine-year-old is, right? We, we, we are just aware. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, we got to laugh at that because there's this silliness to our, there's these subcultures that we have that, that give rise to these hearts that are just envious for one another. So, so let's go deeper than just reading, ah, oh, this was a socially tone-deaf brother who was a complete knucklehead who didn't have any sense of timing, and these brothers rightfully should have been mad at him. No, there's, there's like this culture going on here where these brothers are, are, are just in their disobedience and in their insecurity really spawning and breeding envy and jealousy and the deeper root of their envy. See, it's even deeper than envy. At the core, at the bottom of this envy and jealousy, I think, is really a, it's like glory hoarding. They want glory. They're glory thieves, and they're, they're threatened that somebody else, namely their younger brother, might be in a position of glory where they want it, and they are dissatisfied with it. And ultimately, this envy at its core is idolatry and glory stealing, which at its core is ultimately dissatisfaction with the way and the place that God has them in. And when we are envious friends and jealous around, of people around us, even brothers and sisters, at its core, it's us being dissatisfied with God, shaking our fist at Him, saying, I want that. As that great theologian of the 60s and 70s, Mick Jagger, saying, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I try, and I try. And that's where these brothers are. As they see Jacob, and ultimately God through these dreams, using their brother for his purposes, even though they may not have understood that all at the that point. This is what the scriptures say about envy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Oh, man. And this, we're all prone to it. 
right? We're all prone to it. I mean, okay, you know, I, I'm not in a young mom's play group, so I don't know those envies. And praise God, that would be awkward if I was. <laughs> I, I'm not in a corporate culture where I'm trying to step over people, but I, I mean, this Facebook thing, man, you got to guard your heart from that bad boy, don't you? That'll eat you up. That will eat you up. And I think some of the worst are pastors. We just, we just want to see who's influential out there. And Oh, uh, friends, uh, uh, this whole envy, idolatry, glory-stealing thing, this isn't Brad saying, come on now, boys and girls, you need to get better at this. No, I... Oh, my heart caves into this so often. And pray, pray for me and your other pastors that God would guard our hearts from idolatrous ministry envy. It is a killer. It's a killer. It's a, it makes your bones rot, doesn't it? Yeah. Just a little point of application here. won't have it on the screen. But just, just something to write down underneath the envy of the brothers. Just a point of application for our soul. Envy, which is really glory stealing, never satisfies. It just never satisfies. Are we prone to that? Oh, I am. I am. Who are you jealous of? Do you really believe that getting what you want in that situation will really satisfy you. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Now that's interesting. I don't have much to say about that, but do you remember in Genesis 34 what happened at Shechem before? That's where their sister Dinah was raped by the men of Shechem. And these same brothers, remember, used that, they used circumcision as a sort of uh, tactic, a military tactic to disable the men of Shechem so that they could come slaughter them all. And then Robert took us through how God guarded Jacob and his family from being attacked by these neighboring cities, but here they're back in Shechem. I mean, I don't know, returning to the scene of the crime. I don't know what's going on there. It's just interesting. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Jacob said to Israel, or Jacob said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here am I. So he said to to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So again, we might say, Okay, what's going on here, Jacob? Are you kind of out of it? Is Joseph really the best guy? I mean, he had the dreams. It's not going well with him and his brothers to you. But we'll see here in a moment that God is up to something. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now, that is not that city on the way to the beach, by the way. We're a whole other geographical place here. Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, 
Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And remember the last time we heard about Reuben, Reuben was in Genesis 35, verse 22, where just kind of out of the middle of nowhere, Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, his father's concubine. So maybe is Reuben feeling guilty about that? Is he on the outs with his dad? And now he's trying to be the protective big brother to get back into the good graces of his father? Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They hated that robe, man. It signified all that they hated about Joseph and all that they wanted and that they were trying to steal the glory they wanted but that they weren't able to attain. Verse 24, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. empty. There was no water in it. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now just, just notice the Ishmaelites there. And in a second they're going to be referred to as Midianites. That's not a contradiction. Ishmaelites was probably the greater area. And then uh, the Midianites was a more specific um, classification of these people. So maybe think of kind of like maybe a big area like the United States. Like there come the Americans and then they're, they're called Georgians later on. You know, so it's not a contradiction. But just notice the irony here that these Ishmaelites are descended from the brother of their grandfather, Isaac and Ishmael, where they had conflict. And so this, this, this is one big family having all of this conflict here. And these are the people that God uses to make his name great. I'm encouraged by that. Because, because we're a pretty jacked up crew too, by the way. I don't know if you know that or not. We are. We are. So, and look up, they saw the caravan of the Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, who are actually kind of like our, our second cousins, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, part of the Ishmaelites, and they drew Joseph up drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And that would have been about the standard price for a slave at that time. They took Joseph to Egypt. And we'll see how significant that is in the weeks to come. Verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit... He tore his clothes. Remember, Reuben is the brother that had the plan, um, you know, to, to, to not harm Joseph because he's probably trying to get 
um, in with his dad. So apparently Reuben was not around when Judah and the other brothers came up with his plan to sell Joseph into slavery. Verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Notice the self-absorption even there. It's not about Joseph. What am I going to do? Oh my gosh, I don't have some little card to play to get back in the good graces of dad, the self-absorption. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And oh, friends, this scene is not just dipping with the blood of a goat, is dipping with irony. Here's this father receiving this coat or robe that he gave his son that makes him think that his son is dead. And it is Jacob himself decades before in his youth that stole his brother Esau's robe to trick his brother and his father out of his father's blessing. Oh, the irony. Verse 33, and he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned over for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. I wonder if Reuben and the brothers were, I mean, it says all of his sons rose up. I wonder if they were in that number, and if they were, that's, that's putting on a face right there, isn't it? Like, oh yeah, dad, I can't, I mean, it's so sad what happened to our brother. Ugh. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol. It's just a, a Hebrew word meaning the, the grave, the place of the dead. I shall, in other words, I shall go to my grave, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay. So we saw the envy of the brothers, and now we see the betrayal of the faithful son. Now I mentioned that, um, you know, you kind of have to wonder as we're reading through the first little paragraph there, verses 1 through 11, where Joseph brings a bad report and then he has two dreams, and it just seems kind of like he, again, we just used this phrase, he's like a socially tone-deaf little brother who just, you know, may be smart, but he's not street-savvy enough to come in out of the rain. I admit that's kind of the way I read this story. I've read it many, many times over the years, and as I read it over and over this week, and as I meditated on it, and as I read other faithful uh, people that have thought about this verse for this passage for many, many years, I began to see that there's there's maybe another way we can read Joseph's posture here. I think there's a possibility that we can read it that he was actually a, a courageous and faithful, obedient son. Yeah, maybe his timing wasn't stellar. But think about the courage that it took for him to be the one to not get sucked down into the disobedient culture of his brothers and to give a faithful report to his dad about, yeah, your, your brothers, my brothers, your sons, are, are, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And then to have these dreams, to have this you know, sense that, that God is saying that I'm going to fulfill this role 
and not being timid about it, but actually having the courage to stand in the face of the scorn and the, really the fear of man, or the fear of his brothers in this case, and deliver what he felt was from God despite that. Actually, I think maybe deeper than just him being an awkward little punk little brother is a faithful, courageous, obedient son. And when we see Joseph in that light, which I think is what this chapter actually points us to, we see this incredible shadow of who? Christ, right? Well, what's the point of Genesis 37? The point of Genesis 37 is not just a mere morality tale where we are supposed to read this and say, now, now Johnny and Susie, uh, you see here where there were some bad brothers. Don't be like them. They were bad. Be like Joseph. He was good. That's not the way we're supposed to read this text. It's not the way we're supposed to read the Old Testament. We're supposed to read the Old Testament with like, Jesus goggles on. And when we see these stories, we see that Joseph is a kind of shadow, a picture of the true and better faithful son, Jesus, who was betrayed by his brothers, us, and was sold into slavery for us, and who then was exalted to a place of leadership for us so that he might victoriously lead us out of captivity. Oh, friends, the, para- the, the parallels just jump off the page. Now, we're not just making this up. We see that this is the way that Jesus reads the, the Old Testament. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, as he's talking to some Pharisees who had their noses in the book but couldn't see the Christ that was coming from the book, the Old Testament, couldn't see the, the Messiah that it was speaking about. He says this in John 5, 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So when we read this, it's not, yeah, I need to be more like Joseph and not like those brothers. It's no, I am like those brothers and I need a true and better Joseph, Jesus. Don't we do this with the Old Testament? There's a the classic story, I think, is David and Goliath. In first, uh, Second Samuel, where David is this shepherd boy and he, you know, he musters everything. He reaches deep down inside and he slays the giant, right? And so we sort of instinctively see ourselves as David in that story. And if we just sort of reach down, lace up our boots, cinch up our belt, polish up our rocks, loosen up our arm, and we're good shots, then we can knock down the giants in our life if only we muster courage. But that's not the way to read that story. The, the, the reality is, is we are like Israel, scared in the wood line with our tails between our legs. And Goliath is the giant of sin and the consequences of disobedience to God. And we need a true and better David who will come and finally and fully slay the giant of Satan, death, the grave, and all of its consequences. And as we trust in the true and better David, we can be like Israel who comes out of the woodline now victorious. 
And when we see this story, we should see ourselves as the wicked, envious, glory-hoarding brothers who need, even though we have betrayed him, despite the fact that while we were yet sinners, God loves us and sent his son to us, and we need that true and better faithful son, Jesus. And we see this, the gospel stand forth in this text. Friends, that's what the whole point of this passage is about, that we need Jesus. And let me tell you, if you are in this room and you're not trusting in Christ, you're not yet a Christian, and for whatever reason you made a decision, maybe through invitation or something to come to this church, and you were thinking, you know, I need to, I need to kind of get my life squared away. Friends, you need to hear that you cannot do it. You don't need to improve your life or start to make better decisions. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that you can't do that. You can't submit to God's law. You, like all of us in this room who are Christians, before we trusted in Christ, are enemies of God. And we are rebelling against him. Our hearts are dead. We can't do it. We don't need to self-improve or start to apply better techniques. We need to finally look away from ourselves and look to the true and better faithful son. And the only way, dear friend, that you can do it is not by mustering up more faith or self-effort, but by God's sovereign grace. When he saves a person, he decides to give them eyes to see and a heart to believe and ears to hear so that they can look and see Jesus, so that they can see that the story isn't about doing better, but it's about looking to the one who has done for us. And dear friend, if that is you and God by his Holy Spirit is even making you aware of that right now, don't be dismayed. Be overjoyed because if you are realizing that, I believe that that's evidence that God is giving you eyes to finally see the real truth. That you can't do it, but he's done it for you. And if you will look away from yourself, that means God is giving you faith so that you right now can finally, fully, maybe for the first time, look to Jesus and trust in the good and faithful big brother. Do it even now. Do it now. Do it now. You don't need to fill out some card or recite some prayer. You don't need to do anything but look away from yourself and look in faith to Jesus. Wait for nothing. Do it now. Do it now, friend and be saved oh friends that's the story of the gospel nothing there is no obstacle between you and this grace of God but your own unwillingness turn away from it and look to God even now look to the true and better Joseph look to the true and better David look to the true and better son Jesus who was betrayed for you, who bore the Father's wrath for you, who defeated death and sin on the cross and rose again in victory over it for you if you will turn from trusting in yourself and put your faith in Him. Oh, praise God. Praise God. And then finally, we see not only the envy of the brothers and the betrayal of the faithful son, we see behind all of this, as we conclude here, the hidden hand of God. Behind the envy and the betrayal of Joseph, we see traces of God moving behind the scenes for the good of his people, for their salvation. They don't even know that they're going to need it yet. But God is behind the scenes doing it, arranging, even orchestrating. Now this is something you need to wrestle with here right? Even orchestrating Joseph's 
sail into slavery, he's orchestrating sovereign over evil and sin for the ultimate display of his saving grace and his redemptive plan. So he uses Reuben's guilt over that horrible scene in Genesis 35 to be one little thing that preserves Joseph's life. He uses this anonymous man. Did you notice that? That guy on the way to Dothan? Some guy down, you know, midway through Highway Road 431 there, just on the side of the road. (laughs) Joseph comes upon him. He happened to overhear his brothers. God, the unseen hand of God is is working through this man to be a mouth. No, no, go there. This man is like sent by God to send Joseph into trouble so that he would be sold into slavery, so that he would be in Egypt, so that he would be exalted to be the prince of Egypt, so that when famine struck, he could receive his family and save them from starvation. God is behind the scenes working through this man. He uses Judah, this brother who's the leader of this plan, he uses his greed. He wanted to kill him. But then he decided, no, nah, I might be worth getting a little cash out of this bad boy. So he sells him instead of killing him, preserving his life. He uses the sin of Judah's greed to preserve Joseph's life. He uses Midianite merchants to transport him to a place where he will rise to power so that he can save his people. God, friends, know this. The hidden hand of God is always working, always bringing about his good purposes. No matter who's in power, no matter who is the president, no matter who is the king, no matter what terrorist group seems to be on the news right now, God is sovereign. Proverbs 16 says that God has a purpose for everything, even the wicked for the day of destruction, friends. Do not be dismayed. Part of the reason that God orchestrated the tragic events that we see in Genesis 37 and the rest of the book is to give us a picture of the fact that God is sovereign over human history. Therefore, we need not fear and wring our hands because we don't like the president or the way our country's treating Israel or whatever. Those are things we need to be concerned about, friends, no doubt. In fact, vote. Vote once, vote twice. If you're from Chicago, vote as many times as you can. But let's not be like Christian chicken littles acting like the sky is falling. Let's read Genesis 37 and know that God is in control. He is in the heavens, Psalm 115 says, and he does whatever he pleases. And he orchestrates Joseph's betrayal. He orchestrates it with his hidden hand for the saving of his people. And we're going to end this in a few weeks in Genesis 50, verse 20, where he says, where Joseph says to his brothers, oh, we got to jump ahead, don't we? Where he says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. Friends, just know this as we conclude, and in just a moment we see a brother baptized. God is always, 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 in every age, in every situation, in every nook and cranny, in every heart, always at work for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Therefore, we need not fear. God is our refuge and strength. 
even though the mountains be moved into the midst of the sea, Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, uh, we pray that these words from Genesis 37 would stir our hearts with conviction and confidence that it would humble and embolden us to know that if God is for us, as Wayne read earlier, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but allowed him to be betrayed and sold into, into the, to the pit of the cross. He who did not spare his own son, how will you not, Lord, graciously give us all things? So, Lord, we need not fear pray, Lord, that we would seize that and see that and stand on that and, and that we would shout it from the mountaintops because the world is envious and jealous and stealing glory that never satisfies and they need to see the true and better son who is betrayed for all those that would ever turn from themselves and trust in him. Lord, would you, would you, would you, tattoo that on our hearts? Would you brand it on our hearts? And would it, would it rain from our lips? And would unbelievers in this room see it for the first time and trust? And friend, if that's you, look away from yourself now. Look away and look to Jesus. And if you want to talk to somebody about what, what it means to be a Christian, if you sense that God is calling you now and you just need to talk to somebody, you can talk to anybody that you know to be a Christian in this room. They would be delighted the pastors, anybody that you know to be a Christian would be delighted to speak with you more deeply about what it means to trust in Jesus. Don't leave this room this morning before you do that. Father, now as we see our brother be baptized, I pray that we would be encouraged by your beautiful, sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, amen.